This year's nominees for the Video Game Hall of Fame have been announced, but as time goes on, it becomes obvious that the entire thing is just a huge farce. Good morning! Good Monday morning to you, I'm Shane Satterfield from Sifted, and this is Good Morning Gaming for March 21st, 2022. It's good to be back. When you're a one-man band and you get sick, the music stops playing, but we're ready to get your week off on the right note. The show is in our patrons' feeds bright and early every weekday morning and free on our YouTube channel for everyone else. You can find our flagship show Game Face by searching your favorite podcast service. You'll find the podcast versions of the rest of our content in the same feed you found this. So the Video Game Hall of Fame rolls around this time of year every year, and it's a great topic for podcasts. They announce a ton of nominees, and we go through the nominees. We, we share which games we think should win. We share which games we think shouldn't even be nominees or wonder why certain games are nominated. But as time goes on and these awards start to add up, something is becoming quite apparent with the Video Game Hall of Fame. Last year, there were four games inducted, including Carmen Sandiego, Animal Crossing, StarCraft, and Microsoft Flight Simulator. In fact, four games have been inducted every year since 2017. The first two years, 2015 and 2016, six games were inducted. Looking back at last year, in addition to the four winners, Call of Duty, Farmville, FIFA, Guitar Hero, Mattel Football, Pole Position, Portal, and Tron were also nominated, but did not win. So, you'd assume that those games that didn't quite make the cut last year would also be nominees this year, right? Not so fast. In fact, not a single game that was nominated in 2021 but wasn't inducted into the Hall of Fame is now a nominee in 2022. The list of nominees include the original Assassin's Creed from 2007, Candy Crush Saga, Dance Dance Revolution, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Minesweeper, Ms. Pac-Man, NBA Jam, Parappa the Rapper, the original Resident Evil, Rogue from 1980, Sid Meier's Civilization, and Words with Friends. And again, if you go back and look at the nominees that did not make the cut last year, including Call of Duty, Farmville, FIFA, Guitar Hero, and on and on, none of those games were even nominees for the 2022 inductions. This makes the entire video game Hall of Fame a joke. Nothing more than an annual marketing stunt that would rather cycle through franchises to engage their fans than take the prestige of the Video Game Hall of Fame seriously. How do you do this? How do you say, 12 months ago, here's this list of games that should be inducted this year, but we can only induct four. So you have a list of 12 games, you induct four, you have eight left over. How can you then, 12 months later, say, oh, the, remember all those games that we thought were great a year ago? Eh, we, we don't think they're so great anymore. I mean, do you seriously think that Words with Friends is a better nominee for 2022 than Call of Duty? No. It, it's not. 
It's like every year there are a couple nominees that make no sense whatsoever. Most of them are nostalgia plays, like the Tron Arcade game. It should not have been a nominee last year. I can understand where, okay, in 2022, let's not include Tron. But why did you include Tron in the first place? Because all these other games that weren't nominated last year, but were nominated this year, were also available to be nominated last year. So instead of including Tron last year, why don't you include The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time last year? The whole thing is a joke. And you may be sitting there saying, oh, well, who cares? It's just this fun little thing. Do you think the other Hall of Fames, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, do you think the fans of those institutions don't take them seriously? Take a look online. But for whatever reason, it just seems like so many different times with our industry, things that other industries get right, our industry gets wrong. You could argue award shows for a very long time, and I'm part of the party of that. I did work on the Spike Video Game Awards for several years, trying and failing to affect positive change for that show. And it wasn't just me. There was several people who worked on that show who knew exactly what the, what the show was. It was a marketing fest, just like the Video Game Hall of Fame. And now for a couple more stories from the top of your SIFs. So while I just mentioned that there are certain things that the video game industry seems to fail at that other industries get right, one thing that we do as game players that does honestly happen in a lot of other industries as well is act like crybabies. This weekend, Gran Turismo 7 servers went down for 24 hours. It sucks. The game's pretty recent. It just came out. It's not unreasonable to expect that servers for a game that was recently released would not be down for 24 hours. And that's what happened. The servers were down. It was longer than you would expect. It was a lot longer, I'm sure, than Polyphony Digital and PlayStation wanted the servers to be down. Something happened. But stuff happens. <laughs> that's how things go. Sometimes things don't work exactly how they're supposed to. Sometimes something happens when you're patching something. It creates a bigger problem. Whatever. It was down for 24 hours. Instead of players saying, gee, that sucks, how about I just spend the next day grinding for credits and unlocking some new cars? They revolted. And how do gamers revolt? They act like man babies. And so a huge group of Gran Turismo 7 players went on to Metacritic and bombed the user rating for Gran Turismo 7, which now sits at a 4.1. In no universe is Gran Turismo 7 a 4.1. There's no rationale for that. Gran Turismo 7 has approximately the same user score now as Babylon's Fall. All because a bunch of entitled brats decided to lash out over not being able to play one part of a video game for one day. Think about the long-term implications of this. That number's never coming back. The launch period has come and gone. That ship has sailed. The opportunity to budge the user score in any significant way has passed. Unless something like this happens where you have a subreddit somewhere that gang up on the game and decide we're all going to go and give Gran Turismo 7 a zero. That'll bring it back quicker. It won't bring it back quicker. All it does 
is perpetuate the perception that video games are kids' toys. It's been a while since we got a new Tekken video game, with Tekken 7 still going strong in the esports scene. It has really done quite well. Trying to keep the momentum going while waiting for a new entry in the video game franchise, Netflix has announced Tekken Bloodline, a brand new animated series based on the popular fighting franchise. It launches sometime in 2022. We do not have a hard date yet for that, and it is going to launch simultaneously worldwide when it does. The anime series is a rough retelling of Tekken 3, with Jin Kazama as the main protagonist. The theme of the show is Power is Everything, and the show synopsis goes that Jin has learned the family self-defense arts, the Kazama-style traditional martial arts from his mother, at an early age. Even so, he was powerless when a monstrous evil suddenly appeared, destroying everything dear to him, changing his life forever. Angry at himself for being unable to stop it, Jin vowed revenge and sought absolute power to exact it. His quest will lead to the ultimate battle on a global stage, the King of Iron Fist Tournament. Fans believe they've uncovered more playable characters for WB Games' upcoming free-to-play Smash Brothers clone, Multiversus. There's a technical test, basically a beta, this month, and some audio files have given fans something to chew on. A Reddit user appears to have unearthed nearly two hours of voice lines, including some seemingly attributed to unannounced characters. The Tasmanian Devil, Marvin the Martian, LeBron James... Raven from DC Comics Teen Titans, the Iron Giant, those are all confirmed at this point to be playable characters. But then there were tons of more audio files, including Gizmo from Gremlins, Morty Smith from Rick and Morty, the Joker, the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, Craig Williams from Craig of the Creek, Poison Ivy from DC Comics, Black Adam from DC Comics, Scooby-Doo, Static from Static Shock, The Hound from Game of Thrones, Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones, Beetlejuice, Eleven from Stranger Things, Rick from Rick and Morty, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, Godzilla, Legolas from Lord of the Rings. It's crazy. <laughs> now, a lot of those characters that I just went through, they are not necessarily playable characters. They've just found voice samples. So they could just have cameos in the game. Uh, they could just pop up for certain attacks and things like that. But regardless, it sure looks like WB is going all in on this game. Currently, there are 13 officially announced characters, so the roster looks like it's going to be gigantic. Nintendo's Wii and DSi shops have been down for the last several days. It's supposedly impossible to access the storefronts at all, and you're instead presented with a blank screen on startup, which eventually follows up with an error code. Nintendo's online maintenance page doesn't even mention a single issue. Also, it's a worldwide outage. It's not just in the US or Europe. As a refresher, sales stopped completely on the Wii Shop back in 2019, but Nintendo never provided a date for when downloading old games or the ability to re-download your old games would be cut off. But perhaps we've discovered it all on our own. Square Enix announced this weekend that it has no plans to scale back development on its disappointing game-as-a-service Babylon's Fall. The publisher stated that development through Season 2 is practically complete, and Season 3 work has already begun. It has done horribly with critics. It has done even worse with players, those who have been brave enough to take the plunge. It really looks like a lost cause, but for whatever reason, Square Enix is not yet ready to give up on it. 
Two months before its return, Overwatch League still has no sponsors. Blizzard is finally bringing back live esports events in May now that the pandemic seems to be subsiding, at least in most parts of the globe anyway. But when all the crap hit the fan with the Activision Blizzard accusations over sexual harassment in the workplace and other crimes and misdemeanors, all the sponsors left and they have not come back. Now, you may not think this is a big deal, but esports have struggled to be solvent. And it doesn't matter how popular the game is, particularly during the pandemic, because a lot of the money is made off live event tickets. And unfortunately, live events have not been able to happen. And people just have not found ways to generate as much revenue off of streaming as they have from the live events. They had already kind of maximized that revenue stream in the first place. They were good at it because that's where esports tournaments started but then they became gigantic. You have stuff like the LCS, the League of Legends Championship Series, that draws tens of thousands of people to arenas to watch these events. And that has pretty much dried up all across the globe. So sponsorships matter a whole heck of a lot. And remember, Overwatch League is different in that it has teams placed in each city. And a lot of the owners of Overwatch teams come from traditional sports leagues like the NBA in the NFL. So expectations for that league are different. If it turns out it does not have any sponsors for the launch of this year's season, things could turn bad real quick. This weekend, Ubisoft announced a brand new game streaming technology called Scalar. It turns various parts of the typical video game engine into distributed services. And then they harness cloud processing power, which Ubisoft claims allows for the construction of gigantic game worlds. Ubisoft also claims that the tools will be able to evolve as the expectations for games do the same, and Scalar allows for modular updates to existing games without interrupting play. That's a big deal. It's a little weird for a prominent third-party AAA publisher to announce something like this. It's unclear if it's hoping its competitors will use this tech to make games, or if this is for internal use only. But we'll find out when Ubisoft unveils it in full at the upcoming Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll tackle today's boss fight. Welcome to today's boss fight where I tackle random topics that may or may not be related to video games. So I am all for investigative journalism taking place inside the games industry. The work that Jason Schreier has done exposing, in all honesty, the dark underbelly of the games industry over the last half decade or so, his work is invaluable. It has shined a light on a lot of situations that probably would have just continued on terribly forever. So like in just about every other industry, there is an intense amount of importance over real good journalism. And I do not want to diminish any of that work. It is important. It has changed people's lives. However, 
On Friday, VentureBeat published a story that claims that working conditions at Moon Studios, the developer that works on the Ori franchise, so Ori in the Will of the Wisps, is an oppressive place to work. The story is written by Dean Takahashi, veteran games journalist that I know very well. He's a great guy. He does good work. He's ethical. He reports accurately. For the most part, he keeps his opinion out of his stories, although I would argue he does not do a great job of that in this particular case. And there's a juxtaposition here. There's an irony to this, because the Ori games are so emotional and pleasant, and most people, when they play Moon Studios games, it's an emotional experience. Their games draw feelings from the player. And so you would suspect that the people behind those games would be emotionally mature and, above all, very good at what they do. There's a reason that both of the Ori games have cleaned up awards-wise. Both games have won numerous awards, and I will just say right here, well-deserved. The games are great. There's no denying it. There have been some red flags at the studio. The sequel to the first Ori, Ori and the Will of the Wisps, took five years to create. It suffered several delays. And as it turns out, many of the employees there, or at least several, had problems with the founders Thomas Mahler and Gennady Karol. Several of the people who worked there claim that the founders used what they called an open environment to openly criticize employees' work, and in public and in front of all the other employees. Some of the employees did not take kindly to this and did not feel like it created a great environment to work. One of them was quoted as saying, we really created something special, and I know the only way I was able to reconcile it was I was able to watch people on Twitch and watch other people get moved by it, and that was actually part of my healing process, because maybe my suffering was worth it because other people felt something. In the end, I mean, so many of us were burned out. The employees claimed that it was hard to gain praise for their work, but so far, no one is suing or claiming unlawful behavior, but many workers are quote-unquote fed up with what they see as inappropriate behavior by the two founders. Now I will say this. I read through this entire article, and it is gigantic. The reporting here is good. It's organized well, and I think overall the journalism of the article is sound. But what I've seen by the reaction online to this article, it feels like no one read it. And that's not the fault of Dean Tagahashi and his writing. Because if you read through the entire story, what starts to become apparent is that not everyone who works at Moon Studios feels the same way as these few employees that VentureBeat got on the record to complain about working there. Now, there are a few jokes that the founders told that were horribly offensive. One in particular that was uncovered was awful. But otherwise, the list of abuses listed by VentureBeat were part of working any daily job just a decade ago. Quote, We saw plenty of evidence of harsh language in chat sessions that we reviewed. While the founders constantly pushed for quality, they also gave conflicting or unclear directions when it came to feedback. 
They veered off plan and pushed for changes that threw devs off schedule, and that contributed to crunch. They built a remote team in many different countries, but this blurred the work time zones. They were kinder in person, but the pandemic meant they couldn't get together for retreats. And so the harsh online culture prevailed over a more benign in-person one. Praise was rare. Some of the developers who are quoted in this story have left the company, saying that they were scarred with mental health problems. So we don't have any sexual harassment here. We have the leaders in public forums being harsh with their criticism, cracking some jokes that certainly should not have been cracked in a public forum. But there's no sexual harassment here. There's no emotional harassment, really. Being mentally tough used to be a trait that all employers in every industry used to look for. Someone who could deliver when the chips were down. Someone who could shake off failure to deliver a big win. Someone who could weather the storm and come out the other side. But now, it appears that the workplace is always supposed to be a fun, supportive, emotionally enriching experience day in and day out. But that's not how work works at most successful companies. Great employees are often forged under fire. Challenges make them adapt and learn. They become better. And then they pass that knowledge and expertise along to their reports to make the entire organization stronger. But it almost feels like everyone who works in the games industry wants it to be some sort of a 365-day retreat, almost like an adult daycare. Almost like they're a a nerve ending, just drifting in the wind. Maybe they should stand outside an Amazon warehouse some night when a shift lets out and ask the weary employees how many times they sang Kumbaya while they walked 12 miles during their eight-hour shift. The very best art is almost always produced under some sort of duress or strain. It's why breakup albums are always the best. The pain is funneled through the musician and into the art. So while we need to be sympathetic to truly poor working conditions, there's no reason for men to be intimidating women in the workforce. There's no reason for women to be paid less than men. There's no reason for anyone to be sexually harassed at their job to the point where they don't want to come to work every day. That stuff's got to stop. But we can't just let our faces glaze over and accept each story about workplace misconduct without ever really digging into the details. If we don't do this, then we'll be complicit when the next truly terrible story fails to gain traction due to malaise. There's a crying wolf element of this. If we keep reporting stories like Moon Studios, where, let's be honest, there are some employees at the studio who have thicker skin, who recognize that they have created some award-winning games through the work environment at Moon Studios. And on the other hand, there are some employees that are incredibly sensitive and feel like, yes, we did make some great art, but at what cost? Moon Studios is an independent company, and I fully believe that its founders have the right to create the work culture that it wants. If it wants to be firm but fair with its criticism of employees, and yes, even if it happens in public, It should be allowed to do that. Criticism is not abuse. 
It's a manager's job to improve their employees, to make the products that they're working on better. Sometimes it takes criticism to get those projects across the finish line. And I feel like this is a broader discussion about crying wolf and saying things like, I've been verbally abused or I've been yelled at because someone used capital letters in an email. Now, I'm not trying to sit here and say the old way, the way I was reared through the workforce is the right way. I've had bosses that were complete jerks who just yelled to yell and literally just got off on the fact that they had power over other people. I understand that there are bosses like that. I've had them. It sucks working under those people. But you know what I did when I came across those people? I left and I got another job. And so it's a fine line here when you're talking about telling founders of a company what type of work culture they should have at their company, particularly when the culture that they have cultivated has resulted in a lot of success. So let's take the time to read the stories and not just assume that because we read the headline that the company that is the focus of the report is terrible. Sometimes it literally could just be a conflict of culture. And if we allow stuff like this to happen without questioning it, when the real stories come along where there are real abuses, it won't be long until they'll be completely ignored. Thanks for listening to Good Morning Gaming. I appreciate every single one of you who listens to GMG. I'm Shane Satterfield. Do what the cool kids do and follow me on Twitter at Dinfire. And while you're there, follow Sifted at Sifted Games. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. But until then, make sure you seize today because there will never be another.